All right, so we are going to be digging into Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. And as a bit of a preamble, because we're going to read the text together as a group, but I find it interesting, uh, many expositors, uh, commentators, when they, they teach Romans 7, they don't skip the chapter. They just skip the first half, which is what we're going to not skip today. Uh, partly because as we read this, you'll understand, it'll remind you, oh, that's kind of the text that we just skip over to get to the good part of the chapter. Um, but I, I don't think that would be an appropriate thing. I actually had contemplated doing all of chapter seven in one session. But the only way to do that would be to skip almost everything in verses 1 through 14. And I don't think we should do that. There's a reason why it's here. So let's read it together as a group, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, Sorry, I skipped. But the new life in the Spirit. Verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if you had been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment it might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. You can see why this is a little confusing. Um, there are those who use this as a passage for remarriage. And they make the whole 
content of this passage about, or that is not what Paul's talking about. He's using that as an illustration, using it as a metaphor, not as a rule of action. So let's, you know, that, I was surprised to find out how many people misused that verse just because they were trying to make a different point somewhere else. To make this particular chapter make even better sense, we're going to, wow, that is a really messy eraser. Let's try this one. That's no good. Where's our bag? Oh, there it is. Ooh, we're going to do a little. Oh, I'm not supposed to write this with the thing. I mean, seriously, this is not going to work. But how's the other side of the board Ooh. look? Hey, good idea. <laughs> look at that. This is why we have a two-sided whiteboard. here today. All right. What you're going to have fun here is you will get to write down on probably the back of your paper the chart that I'm about to create up here. Um, it's going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and three across. So we've got one, two, wow. I am just having no luck today. Let's try. Much better. Okay. This is Romans 6 and Romans 7. What's so fascinating to me is how often when we make these comparisons, we find an intentionality in Paul's expression and description of the argumentation and his, his theology. He's saying the same thing on two different topics. But until we draw up the chart, we don't necessarily see it because we tend to focus either on a single verse or just on a single chapter. So the key word in, in Romans 6 is sin. We find it 11 times. The key word in Romans 7 is law. And you'll find this, depending on whichever English translation you're using, um, about 18 times. Right away, you can see a theme between the two. But what is Paul trying to say that separates the two? Well, we take the believer's relationship to sin and the law. So these are both discussed in at length in each chapter. 
In chapter 6, sin has dominion. We see that in verse 6, in chapter 6, verse 14. In chapter 7, the law has dominion. Six two. You have I died to sin. In Romans seven four, I died to the law. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we're just seeing this. He's saying or arguing the same concept but with two different topics and is saying the same thing each time. Freedom. In 6.18, we are free from sin. In 7.3 and 7.6, we are free from the law. Then in 6.4, we walk in the newness of life. And in 7.6, which we just read, we serve in the newness of spirit. Now, when I post this on the, uh, the website, I will include this chart because those who are listening can't see it. If chapter 6 is a description of our death to sin through the union in Christ, chapter 7 describes our death to the law through the sacrifice of Christ. It's the same concept in general. Now, as I was kind of wrestling with this, going, how am I going to present this material? Because all through chapter 7, he's talking about the law over and over and over and over and over again. Saying that we're free from the law. It's the law is in the past. The, um, you know, Christ is, we are no longer under the law. In fact, verse 14 of chapter 6 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under anybody? grace. So doesn't that give us the impression that law is a bad thing? And don't we often use that in, a, in our conversation? We talk about, well, now we are free from the law. We're, we, we live under grace. We don't live under the law. So obviously the law is bad. Well, let's be careful 
that we don't make that mistake so frequently. So one of the, uh, it was interesting just yesterday at this conference I was at, the, uh, the evening speaker was professor of New Testament at Biola and at Talbot. And he is the evangelical consultant to the TV show, The Chosen. And so it was fascinating to hear his input uh, about that particular thing, some, some of the things they're doing. He said, in the earliest script for season one, they had portrayed the Pharisees in a very negative light. And you know, Dr. Huffman said, you have to be careful because realize the Pharisees weren't necessarily the bad people. They were just deluded by their own pride. They were working so hard to be holy and were revered for that. But they let it get to their heads, which is why Jesus really came after them and went, you guys are unwashed sepulchers. You know, you're, you, you're, you, you're empty because you have this law and you're not realizing what you're doing. And they resisted, obviously. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. So I wrote here, I said, it isn't law or grace. It's law and grace. We are people of, since we are people of God, we are people of the law. Paul had to constantly and consistently teach about it, and at the same time, the new life in Christ. So, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to be misunderstood um, if I'm saying these things, so let me kind of go through some scriptures, because if we believe the totality of scripture, Old and New Testament, we can't ignore Psalm 19, 7 through 10, which reads, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous together. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey dripping from the honeycomb. Or you fast forward to Psalm 119. The entirety of Psalm 119 is a praise of the Word of God, the law of God, if you will. Verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Verse 18, Open my eyes that I may hold, behold the wondrous things out of your law. Verse 77, Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 97, oh how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. And verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, your law is my delight. 
Deuteronomy 27:26 says, Cursed is he who does not conform to the word of this law by doing them. Ecclesiastes 12:13 says, Fear God and keep his commandments. And this applies to every person. And you might go, well, that's fine, Steve, but that's the Old Testament. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To fulfill the law and the prophets. And then even in today's verse, verse, verse 12 says of chapter 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Even in this discussion about him saying we are not under the law, at the same time he's praising it. We have to be so careful that we don't just simply dismiss this concept of the law. So I thought, okay, so where, where does this, let, let's, let's, keep, let's keep going with the thought here. Christians are not under the law, but under grace, which I wrote, read in uh, chapter 6, verse 14 of Romans. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. We are led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18, which reads, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Christ is the end of the law for those who are believers. This is Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what happens is we react to this concept of law, which we've talked about before in our previous chapters, in two ways. One is legalism. Where we say, we must have rules to determine holiness and as an antidote to sin. In fact, Pastor Jim alluded to that today. Saying, you know, if we can I do what can I do to be acceptable to God? And as he put it, if you're doing anything, it doesn't matter. It's not going to help. We measure spiritually those things and create superiority over those who don't do the same as we do which is what the Pharisees did. The other reaction is libertinism or antinomianism, which says there's no laws, there's no rules, we can do whatever we want because Christ died for our sins. So I can be debauchery, have debauchery this afternoon, but I'm still saved on Sunday night. Well, that's wrong as well. It's interesting to note that all Ten Commandments are mentioned in the New Testament at some point. All ten of them. The law is there. Do we dismiss the Ten Commandments because we are no longer under law but under grace? Well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, shouldn't there be the Ten Commandments? Well, of course there should. Well, but we're not under the law. We're not, we're not obligated to that. Well, yes, you are. For goodness sake. So I wrote this comment uh, in my notes as I was thinking about this. We are not lawless. Two words. 
not lawless one word, but we are not lawless. But we are enabled to keep the law because the Spirit gives us the desire and the power to do so. If we end up creating our lists and checking them twice and determine who's naughty and nice, we are taking back the power of the law to ourselves. Each morning, each one of us needs to take a moment and to surrender our will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And only then can the power of the Spirit allow us to be free from the laws that we create for ourselves. And thereby, the laws we do follow are the laws that God wants us to follow, not the ones that we've created. I mean, at this conference yesterday, and I'm talking to this one young lady, and she goes, oh yeah, I grew up in this really hyper-conservative uh, church. And I mean, basically, the, the ladies had uh, measuring sticks to find out how far our skirts were below the knees. And we got measured before we walked in. And we had other things. She's just going on and on and on about these various rules. And she is, let me just tell you, when I turned 18, I walked away from it all. Because all I saw was life as a, a body of rules, not as a lifestyle. But then she said, but I also didn't have Christ in my heart either. And I thought, whoa, I'm going to be teaching about this where we have taken the control that if we can just be this, act this way, then God's going to consider us holy. Well, if we go past, after what Pastor Jim was preaching at today, we've already been declared holy. Now the Spirit, if it's in us, will allow us to live that way, rather than us setting up our own uh, measure measuring sticks. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Alright, that's my preamble. Now we start with verse 1. Because <laughs> I want to make sure when we hear, when we read this, I mean the word laws is used over and over and over and over again in this passage. But you will also note, if you have your Bible open, starting around verse 7, verse 8, and on through the end of chapter 7, Paul begins using the first person singular pronoun. And he has yet to have done this. He uses the word I almost 30 times in chapter 7. He uses me or my even more so. There's almost 50 indications in those few 20 some odd verses at the end of this chapter that it's Paul talking about his own personal understanding of this. Which many point at that saying this is probably one of the most personal self-portraits of Paul that you will find in scripture. He's been going on, think about it, he's been going on all this heady theological stuff, even the first six verses here, it's very heady theological about dying to sin, dying to the law, and then suddenly he goes, yeah, I struggle with this too. I'm like, 
What? No. You're Paul. You're Saint Paul. We call you Saint Paul. Well, no, they didn't call him that then, but we call him Saint Paul. And you realize, wait a minute, he struggled. And we're going to look at that uh, more intensely the next time we're together, because we'll look at the other half of this chapter. But let's look here. Notice the first word in our text. It's the word or. There's been a lot of uh, interesting commentaries that in the King James, the, the translation does not start with the word or. It just starts with the word do. And it has confused many people in older study of the English scripture. They actually missed the connection between chapter 6 and chapter 7. But that word or connects these two charts directly. Because if you think about it, it would be reading if we didn't have the verse references or the chapter references. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Wait, what? This is connected to the famous the wages of sin is death verse. He's saying, are you just not tracking with me here? The law is binding. It has jurisdiction on a person as long as they are alive. And then he uses the metaphor. For example, if a woman is married to a man and the man dies, she's no longer bound by the law of marriage of that relationship. But if he's still alive and she dallies with someone else, she's an adulteress. So he then says in verse uh, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another and to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. One more thing in the comparison. Um, Verse 4, excuse me, as the fruit for God, chapter 6, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at the time of the things you're now ashamed? That's the fruit of sin. And then in verse chapter 7, verse 4, he talks about those who are raised in order to bear fruit for God. There's another contrast. In other words, if you could, if you could reprint your Bible, take out the chapter reference, even the header that's in your Bible, and then change the verse references so that chapter 6 verse 24 is actually chapter 7 verse 1 so that you can see the continuation of his argument. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 7 and the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 6. As in a, It's almost as if someone interrupted um, the pastor's sermon 
And everyone went to lunch. And then they came back and went, oh, was he talking about that an hour ago? I don't remember. But if he had been let to continue, he probably would have even used hand gestures and said, you know, the fruit of, the, of sin is death. The fruit of the Spirit is life. And everyone had gone, oh, wow. But we don't see that here because we put our nice little numbers in, a, in the middle of it all. But now we are released from the law. Verse 6, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve. Remember the whole metaphor about slavery, that we are slaves to Christ. We are now His, and we serve in a new way of the Spirit. You can even put it in your margin of your Bible if you wish. But the word Spirit is found 20 times in chapter 8 of Romans. But this is the only time it's mentioned in chapter 7. So again, it's that genius of Paul's teaching where he's slowly but surely and inexorably leading us to a massive conclusion of chapter 8 of how to live the Christian life. Once you understand all this theology, once you understand your place in the in, in God's ultimate creation and putting things right, that the Spirit then comes through and helps us in our day to day. So I wrote another comment on the side here. I said, we abide by the grace of God in union with Christ to know we are not under the Mosaic law as a rule of life. However, we know that there are moral and spiritual principles in that law that reflect the will of God because the law reflects the character of God. He established it and called it good. We can't say, oh, it's bad. That, that isn't what's intended. These aspects address the moral and ethical and spiritual things which we obey with delight through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so frustrating to me personally and probably to many of you when you watch certain church organizations and make declarations that are simply anti-biblical. And you just go, what are you doing? You're letting the world's morals dictate how you interpret life. And you want to go back, where, where is this? I don't know if you've been, any of you have uh, been following the latest rift in the Methodist Church, for example. And sorry for any of you who are listening that are Methodist, but... Uh, that's why I left that church after 45 years. That's why you left the church after 45 years. Very good. Well, you understand, personally. And right now there's a big rift in the African Methodist Church because you have the conservative Bible-believing groups saying, we're not letting the Americans tell us how to live. Are you kidding me? And it's, it's just this mess. So one of my friends and I, we were exchanging a note about this, and he's just going, that, that? and he used to work for Cokesbury, which was the the uh, publishing arm of the Methodist Church. And he goes, they are just 
they're, they're losing so much ground. And I said, well, it started when they stopped believing the scriptures. Mm. And he goes, yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad news. And you watch this and you go, where is this coming from? Well, I would say it's not coming from above. It's coming from below. That's why it's so important for us to be studying these types of things. So we go to verse 7. Now remember, I'm gonna, I, I keep repeating these things, so I'm sorry if I, I repeat myself. Paul, the author of this text, was steeped in legalism, tradition, works, outward religious expression. He kept the law as well as anyone. He even says that. And then Jesus transformed his heart. And for the last 20 years, he's been traveling the countryside, teaching, praying about this. He's been wrestling with this concept and trying to show people the error of following a works-based faith. And no one would be better suited than to someone who actually was probably the shining star. He was the, the goat, greatest of all time. He was the, the guy, the star pupil. And Christ said, no, you need to be doing this for me. And Paul changed his understanding because of his confrontation with Christ. So he comes to verse 7 and he says, so what do we say? Was it like the fourth time that he's asked a question in these passages? The, so is the law sin? Of course not. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This is a fascinating, very personal understanding of this. In fact, it goes back to, we would not have known that we had rules if we hadn't turned the board around. <laughs> I would not have known what it was to don't run, don't play, don't throw things. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And you want to go, really? But isn't that kind of just kind of embedded in our bodies? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So I came across this. This is just for fun and tickles. It's, uh, Alyssa Morgan, the president of MOPS, which is Mothers of Preschoolers, she created the Toddler's Creed. Have you ever heard this? If I want it, it's mine. <laughs> If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take, away, take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. And if we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. And if it looks like mine, it's mine. That's the toddler's creed. It's also the creed of covetousness. <laughs> and so we try, as parents, to teach 
No, listen, you need to share. You need, you know, someone says, especially the, the youngest toddlers, when they're just starting to understand their reach, it's everything within their reach is theirs. And it's just this learning how to change that takes a lot of patience and time and understanding. But think about it. Paul was out there thinking, and then suddenly he is taught about covetousness, and suddenly that's all I can think about. Huh. So there's another example of a hotel in Galveston, Texas, that was on the bay. And they'd had a trouble with a couple of the uh, people who stayed there fishing off the balconies. So they put up signs on every balcony in the hotel, facing inward to the room. Do not fish off the balcony. The next week, there were a hundred people fishing off the balcony. They were using weighted fishing line and the weights would swing and crack windows below them. And they're going, oh my goodness, what just happened? We created a rule and everybody's going, oh, I didn't know we could fish here. No, you can't. But the law was suddenly, now we have, now we know about it, so let's break it. They took the sign downs, all the problems went away. And they never had another incident. And if the, someone was up, they'd just go up and knock the door, could you please not do that? It's like, oh, sure, I didn't realize that was a problem. But as soon as they put the sign up, so one guy said, what if it's like a speed limit sign? So let's say you go to Wyoming, I think it's Wyoming, where there is no speed limit on the, free, on the highways. Literally none. It used to be Montana. Hmm? It used to be Montana. It used to be in Montana, same thing. In other words, you go 150 miles an hour and they could not pull you over for speeding because there was no speed limit. What if you suddenly put a sign up that said 25 miles an hour on the freeway? <laughs> You're gonna have everybody going, what heck with that? Then the police would pull you over and go, did you know you were speeding? Well, yeah, but it used to be okay. So now it becomes this argument of this law, the seemingly capricious laws being placed on you. I remember getting caught in a speed trap when I was in high school. There was a road that you come along and then suddenly it's an uphill, I mean it's a steep hill and then levels off. Well, they put a 10 mile an hour lower speed limit sign at the top of the hill than it was at the bottom. But the only way to get up the hill is to gun it. I mean, seriously, you, if you didn't, you, have, you were in danger of rolling backwards. It was that steep. And a policeman would always have his radar gun right past that thing and he'd be pulling over people constantly and I was one of them I was like oh man how else am I going to get up this hill and I'm thinking yeah well I understand later that the uh, enough people complained that it was an obvious money-making speed trap and so they changed the law yeah. going back to the you don't know about it until the law is made when I was in fifth grade and got my braces one of the main things he said is do not chew ice. I had 
never wanted to chew ice before. <laughs> I started chewing ice. I had glasses of ice. I was like, I really like this. Really <laughs> Yeah, the idea of being told that you can't do suddenly something in us says, okay, let's do it. But that's what Paul's trying to say, is that the law is there to show us our sin. That if we didn't have the Ten Commandments, then we could just murder each other. It'd be perfectly okay. But the law was there, and so he says here, I once lived apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now he's meaning spiritually, obviously. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seeing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So, going back to the verse that we've already read, could even use the word therefore if you wanted. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So here's a problem which we've discussed before but I found some very good quotes related to it. In fact I was even talking a little bit about it last week that the use of the word sin has disappeared. We don't talk about it. There was a uh, book by the name of whatever happened, whatever became of sin by Carl Menninger. It was a very old book, back in the early 90s, I think, when it first came out. Um, but I'm reading some of the quotes from this book, thinking he wrote that 30 some odd years ago, and it's still true. The word sin seems to have disappeared. It was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous, and even serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Did anyone not sin anymore? Doesn't anybody believe in sin anymore? And then he further writes, he says, whenever you look at sin as either crime or symptom, you're missing the essence of human right and wrong behavior. Whenever you take sin and turn it into crime, what you've done is taken God out of the picture. Because sin is committed between a person and God. Crime is malfeasance between human beings. You've, uh, you, when you call it crime, you're defining it downward. But if you take sin and turn it into symptom, you've gone even lower because you're talking about th things like outward indications. You're talking about heredity or environment. You're talking about early life choices and factors that infringe on the outside. And he's so right. We try to say, yeah, the guy just shot 17 people because he had a bad home life. It was a symptom of his upbringing. No, it was evil. Pure and simple. There's just no other way about it. And 
Uh, he actually alludes to it, and I didn't have the time to investigate to make sure it has continued, but he compares the National Day of Prayer Declaration going back to Abraham Lincoln in 1863, and every president since then, in a day in May, has the National Day of Prayer. The last one to use the word sin in their prayer was Eisenhower. It's not mentioned anymore. It's, a, it's an offensive word. Well, it should be, Doc on it. Let's call it what it is. When there is malfeasance between people, yes, that's a crime, and yes, there could be symptoms for the crime, but it's still sin, ultimately. Because it's breaking the law of God. And we need to be, I'd say, let's bring it back into our vocabulary more freely, more, I don't know, meaningfully. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Meaning the law is good, so, so what is good? Did that bring death to me? No. He says it again. He sets up the, the scenario. It was sin that produced death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and a slave doesn't say that word in your text it says sold to sin but that's the metaphor that I'm a slave to sin here's Paul he starts Romans chapter 1 verse 1 Paul a slave of Jesus Christ and here we are Chapter 7, verse 14. For I am of the flesh, a slave to sin. Huh. This is why the rest of chapter 7 is, and then in chapter 8, but the rest of chapter 7 is so fascinating and I think visceral for all of us. We will connect with what Paul is saying when he says, I struggle with my sin and here's it's saint paul saying this and we all kind of go oh yeah we just don't talk about it we don't write it in the bible and have people talk about our sin two thousand years later we tend to hide it we tend to put it away and we'll address all of that when we are back together um, I have finished our text, so let's pray and end. Lord, thank you for our time together, for the thoughts, the concepts here, that the law that you put for and created for us is actually good. It's for our good. It is a piece of you. It is the character of who you are to put the law together, and yet, we don't have to live by the law to be worthy because you gave us a means of grace beyond that. 
And yet, at the same time, you are asking that we live as holy people, as emissaries of your word and your grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.